0: Most of the things that I've done have taken me quite a long time to realize any sense of real visibility in doing them. That's just always been the arc of my life in anything that I was doing. I didn't really get any traction with my career for about the first decade. You know, I I now look back and call that first decade experiments in uh, rejection and failure.
1: I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your daily work through the simple act of slowing down. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a good friend and an incredibly talented human to the show, designer Debbie Millman. I don't have time to list all of Debbie's myriad accomplishments here, so I'll limit myself to the highlight reel. Debbie is the creator and host of Design Matters, which investigates how remarkable people build a creative life and is also one of the longest-running podcasts in existence. She is the co-founder of the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts, the former president of Sterling Brands for 20 years, the author of six books, and the chairman of the board for the Joyful Heart Foundation, which does healing, education, and advocacy work to support survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. Because Debbie herself has such a broad range of experience, this conversation is a little more wide-ranging than some others on Hurry Slowly. But there is a common thread. As we consider how success and achievement unfold over time. We talk about how long it takes to achieve anything worthwhile, why it's so easy to metabolize and synthesize our accomplishments rather than recognizing them, and what are the different ways to pace yourself to success, taking a marathoner's approach like Debbie or a sprinter's approach like me. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive in. You've written that one of the unfortunate side effects of the rise of technology is the speed at which things happen. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Well, I I used to talk about how we were
0: living in what I was then calling a 140 character culture, but I guess now I'd have to change it slightly to a 280 character culture, um, in that we are able to communicate so quickly. Um, The whole notion of something being viral is because it just spreads so fast that everybody is able to see it and participate in it in some way. And and so that's really what I mean, this notion of being able to send a message out that virtually anyone and everyone could hear instantaneously.
1: And do you think of it primarily... Just in terms of social media? Well, technology facilitates this. The technology
0: is what amplifies that message. I don't think we would be able to know what was happening as quickly as we are now able to without the ability to experience it online or on our devices and so i do think that technology is the the instigator to this but i also think that humans as a species tend to be extremely desirous of self gratification and that instantaneous gratification that comes with being in control of our information, which is what I think social media gives us, that sense of. It's not true, obviously, but it gives us a sense of being in control. If we can see what's happening on Twitter, we are aware. We are
1: woke. So in the same piece that I was referring to before, you give the example of a young woman who asked you for advice... She had recently launched a blog and she was a little bit frustrated that she wasn't getting any traction. Could you share that story? <laughs> oh, that poor thing, bless her heart. Um, I was talking
0: about building a brand, building a podcast, and she was um, extremely interested in how my podcast got started and how I would built my career. And I probably was well into my 50s at that point well maybe early early 50s and she was just what seemed to be devastated by the lack of traction her own blog was getting and when I asked her how long she'd had it without missing a beat she said six weeks (laughs) And I was like,
1: girl, I've had yogurt in my refrigerator longer than that. <laughs> and so what did you say to her?
0: Well, I said that anything worthwhile really takes a long time and that she wanted whatever she was doing to instantly manifest a sense of gravitas, a sense of stature, a sense of meaning. And and for me, there was this notion that she was expecting because she was putting it out there for the people to come. And and while that might work, you know, in a Wayne's World movie, it doesn't really work in real life. And And what I told her was that she should concentrate more on what she was making and the content of that making than the response that she would be getting six weeks into the making.
1: So... Obviously, six weeks is a fairly aggressive uh, expectation in terms of achieving success or notoriety or even some level of awareness, right? But what is a fair expectation for how long something should take? I I think that's actually the really challenging question here because it's clear to both of us and to many people listening probably that technology has really warped our expectations about how quickly things should happen. But even if we set that aside, there's still the question – of how to create some sense of a timeline for any creative endeavor because you need that to stay engaged and motivated you know but my personal experience is that everything takes longer than you think it will so I'm curious how you you know frame that for yourself or how you talk to students about that
0: I'm a bad example because I tend to do things for a really really long time whether they're good for me or bad for me. So I am sort of the queen of staying in relationships way too long when it's clear that they're not good. I've been in most of the jobs that I've had for decades. I stayed at Sterling Brands for 22 years. I stayed in the last home I lived in before the one I'm in now for 25 years. I... I've been working at the School of Visual Arts for 13 years. I've been doing my podcast for going on 15 years. Um, The first 100 episodes were unlistenable, but I tend to feel very committed to things for far longer than I probably should. But I also feel that if I wasn't as committed to things, because so much of what I've accomplished has been later into the process... In terms of any measure of success, that if I had abandoned them sooner, maybe aside from relationships, if, if I'd abandoned them sooner, I probably wouldn't have been able to accomplish as much as I did in, in doing them. Most of the things that I've done have taken me quite a long time to realize any sense of real visibility in doing them. That's just always been the arc of my life in anything that I was doing. I I didn't really get any traction with my career for about the first decade. You know, I I now look back and call that first decade experiments in uh, rejection and failure because that's how much I, I... experienced those things over and over and over again. And maybe a a smarter or less patient person would have thought, you know what, maybe maybe I should do something else. But I just kept pushing, just kept trying. And and the same thing with the various organizations that I'm a part of. And and again, even the podcast, which took, I would say, realistically about six or seven years before I really – began to figure out what I was doing and how I was doing it.
1: Right. Well, and there were
0: no models for you at that time, right, as well. There were no models. And for the first couple of years, there was no real good sound equipment. (laughs) So my my first early
1: podcasts, just the sound quality is abysmal. Well, so you said earlier, everything worthwhile takes time. And... The longer something takes, the longer it will last. I'd like to think that. I mean, I, I don't know that that's really
0: true. But I, you know, in the, in the mighty words of Dan Gilbert, I've synthesized my happiness to believe that. And so I'll, I'll stick with that.
1: Well, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And I think part of it is that all of that effort and that love and that care that you're putting into this thing over time, right, sinks into it. And when people come to that thing, whatever that thing is, I think they can feel that, right? And so the more time and the more effort that you put into something, the more palpable that that feeling becomes to, you know, an outsider, so to speak, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, part
0: of what perplexes me, and I believe it was Einstein that said it, that the um, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That to me sounds like hope. I mean, it really does. I I kept doing it over and over and over, and I did get better at it slowly over time, and, and then did get a measure of success in the doing. I didn't consciously do anything any differently, but I was growing as I was doing it organically.
1: So here's my question. There's sort of a fine line between telling yourself that everything takes time versus procrastinating versus as you were saying just going insane because you're literally <laughs> doing the same thing again and again without altering the way in which you're doing it so i'm curious for yourself how do you gauge like when you're pacing yourself and when you're kind of staying in it to win it versus when you're maybe just flailing or kind of you know giving into what stephen pressfield would call the resistance
0: i'm not a procrastinator I have a very, very good, probably overactive work ethic. Part of that is to manifest a sense of worthiness and purpose, but the other part is that I just really like working and I really like working hard and I like being engaged in something really deeply. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I qualify for that second category. I, I don't ever feel like I'm procrastinating. There are times where I can be lazy but that's usually because I'm running on fumes and can no longer lift my arms. <laughs> um, but in terms of when to know when to give up, you know, when to fold, um, that I don't really know from a professional standpoint. I don't know that I've ever given up. I've walked away when I felt like I was finished, but it wasn't because I failed. It was because I was ready to do something else. It wasn't in defeat. Um, the only thing that I really have walked away from is, um, unhealthy, negative behavior, either that I was engaged in or that I was engaged in with others.
1: Right. But if we maybe shift the perspective from say a job to, you know, a creative project, you've written a number of books, right? So that's like a very different situation. And so if we're talking less about career and more about creative projects, right, there is the element of having to sometimes put it down, sometimes set it aside, but also know when to move forward and then know when to say, well, this thing is finished. I've put enough time into it. So how does that play out for you in terms of those projects? Usually I'm
0: very deadline oriented. I never hand in something early. No one is ever going to be surprised by my submitting something a week before it's due. So I tend to work really, really well with deadlines. I tend to work really, really well with creating lists for myself and then having the um, joy of, of crossing something off a list. I'm very into analog, writing things down, crossing things off. I have a paper calendar. Everything that I do is sort of in that... Journal slash calendar. One thing that I did get a little bit in trouble for when I was working on Look Both Ways, my first book of illustrated essays, because that was a book that came really out of nowhere and from nothing. It was a, an idea that I had that came out of a class that I had taken with Milton Glazer in two thousand and five, wherein we had to envision our five-year plan, which is now turned for me into a 10-year plan that I teach my younger students because they tend to be as young, because they're younger, they have more runway. Um, but at the time, it was to envision one's life sort of the way you hoped it could be, if anything you wanted could be manifested. And because I would declared this list of things that I wanted, one was a book was writing a book of illustrated essays. And because I'd had a relationship at the time with uh, How Magazine, which also had an imprint called How Books, I sent a query to the acquisitions editor who was also on the editorial staff of the magazine. And they'd always been really nice to me. And I thought, you know, why not? I ended up not hearing back from Megan Patrick, the woman who was doing the job at the time. But then six weeks later, I wrote her again and said, hey, you know, I didn't hear back. No. So I figured... Why not ping her again and said, hey, Megan, did you ever get that query I sent you about this book of illustrated essays that I want to try and do? And she said, no, I didn't. And I believed her because it was a very gigantic file that I stupidly sent. I ended up sending it again via, you know, a transfer service. And she got it, showed it to the editorial board, and then they ended up agreeing to publish this book. I hadn't actually made any illustrated essays other than the one sample essay for the pitch. I had to make this whole book from scratch. And the last time I had done any kind of illustrated essay making was at least 10, if not 15 years before. So all of a sudden now I'm faced with having to do something that I haven't done in a really long time that I'm now publishing a book about. And so I took about a year to do it. But what happens when you start doing something that you are doing regularly over and over and over, you get better at it. And so by the eight or nine month mark, you could see the vast improvement that I'd made in the work from eight months prior. So then I started redoing everything. (laughs) And so at that point, I ended up being cut off by the publisher, which, you know, a couple of months after the deadline, they were like, okay, you're now officially cut off. You can't redo any of the essays. What we have is great. We're going to market with it. And I still look back at that book and think, oh, if I'd only had like another six months, it could have been so much better. I'm a little embarrassed by it, but it was a good lesson in really how to get better at doing something.
1: So coming back to the 10-year plan that you mentioned, you were saying you go through that as an exercise with your students now. So I'm curious how that plays out. It's interesting, right? You said it was a five-year plan. Now it's a 10-year plan. It's an interesting shift to me in terms of thinking about going back to the idea of technology that we were Mm. talking about at the beginning and how uncertain everything is and how difficult it is to plan, right? So we were talking about podcasts, you know, podcasts, didn't even exist really when you started. Your podcast that started on the radio, right? So how does that 10-year plan look and what's the utility when you're in this kind of incredibly uncertain, like really fast changing environment? That's a great question. And I think
0: that's probably the biggest pushback I get from my students when they're trying to craft their own 10-year plans. Like how could I possibly know? It's really more about your biggest dreams, about what your life can be, and so you're writing about a state of mind as much as you are making a list of what it is you want to be doing. I made a list in addition to the essay, mostly because I still had so much I wanted to do. I did that exercise 14 years ago. So I was already in my early 40s. The podcast had ju- I just started the podcast, just started. I was in season one. I don't even think I had done 10 episodes at that point and so for me it was in, it was envisioning the kind of life i wanted to have the kind of freedom i wanted to have in making creative work and milton was really really committed to this exercise he said it was a bit of a magical exercise in that he was he had been teaching this class i think at that point for several decades he was always hearing back from students 5 years later saying oh my god everything manifested and it was Very, and I don't know if it was something in the universe or it was just my declaration of the things that I wanted, but I found that shortly thereafter, I was beginning to manifest some of the things that I'd written about. Those things didn't really depend on technology. It was about how I wanted to live a creative life and what I needed to find within myself to do that. And in many ways, the essay... Allows you the freedom to fantasize and imagine what a life devoid of fear might actually feel like. The reason that I give my students more time is because my students, I do this with my undergraduate students and my graduate students, most of which are either in their early 20s or early 30s. And I was in my nearly mid 40s at that point. The class was actually structured Milton's class was structured for mid-level designers who were experiencing some sense of burnout. My students are there to feel they're, they're really just feeling their their tentacles stretching out for the first time. So there really isn't a sense of of burnout, it's a sense of possibility. And so, as a result, I want to give them more time. Also, frankly, it took me about 10 years to manifest most of what I did. I did get some early results in the first couple of years, and by five years, I was probably 50% or 60% to realizing almost everything else. But there's still one or two things on the list from 2005 that I haven't manifested, but I'm not sure I even want those things anymore. So, in that regard, yes but they're not technologically based. They're still endeavors. So it's more about self-reflection, in a sense. And I don't know that I would say that it's self-reflection. I think it's manifesting certain things
1: that don't rely on technology. So you said that you they were about things that you needed to find within yourself. Creative what? courage. You know, just that notion of, I could write a
0: book of illustrated essays, can I? You know, that kind of thing. And then because I had declared that I wanted it, I actually did make the effort to go out and pitch it. And so that led to another book of illustrated essays. So those are those are the things. It was in some ways allowing myself to go after certain things because here I had declared it, and then in other ways – And again, some people will be rolling their eyes when they hear this, you know, is putting it out to the universe and and hoping that someone out there or something out there was listening and those types of opportunities then coming my way.
1: And so have you seen any kind of trends or commonality or or what are just some of the most interesting things that come up for your students when they do this activity? Well, because they tend to be job-based Getting the jobs that they want, or starting
0: the kinds of companies that they want, and and manifesting a life to them that matters. And, and I do see it a lot. I've been teaching now for for quite some time, and so I do get not probably quite as much as Milton, but I do get lots and lots of letters and notes from students that are incredulous that they were able to manifest some if not all of their plans.
1: We have to take a short break now, but stay with me. When we come back, Debbie and I will dig into the concept of marathoner versus sprinter personality types and the problem with thinking about yourself as a personal brand. This episode is brought to you by Hover. In the internet age, your website is your calling card. And just like when you meet someone in person, a lot is riding on that first impression. Which is why finding a domain name that truly captures the essence of your personal brand is a crucial first step. And fortunately... Hover is here to make finding a domain name that matches your profession and your personality super simple. They have a massive amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus some special favorites for creative folks. For instance, if you're building a new website to showcase your portfolio, consider checking out Hover's extensive dot design offerings, which allow you to bake your expertise right into the URL. And once you've found the perfect match, Hover makes setup a total breeze. They don't bug you with unwanted upsells, and you can easily connect your new domain to a bunch of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got a new website that you're itching to build, start laying the groundwork now by heading on over to Hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot Slash hurry slowly This episode is also brought to you by Harvest. Research has shown that most people's productivity falls off a cliff after about 50 hours a week, which means the getting things done isn't about the quantity of hours you put in. It's about the quality of those hours. But how do you know that the time you're putting in is really creating value? Enter harvest a simple and intuitive time tracking tool that shines a light on your business's time so you can make intelligent decisions about where you spend it it lets you know how your projects are performing which ones are creating value and which ones are costing you money and all of that data helps you get smarter about predicting the future Harvest gives you a clear sense of how much time you're spending on projects so that you can be sure you're charging the right amount. What's more, by looking back at that historical data, you'll be able to accurately estimate when you'll get future projects done and how much they will cost. Plus, Harvest can add up your time and automagically invoice your clients. And I know you hate invoicing. So head on over to getharvest.com slash hurry slowly today to start a free 30 day trial and get fifty percent off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly. So kind of circling back to something we were touching on earlier, I have this I have a theory about kind of the life cycle of creative projects and businesses that I want to bounce off you. I think there are two types of people. There's marathoners and there's sprinters, which is actually not, it's not so different from Isaiah Berlin's theory about hedgehogs versus foxes. So like marathoners are in it for the long haul. They do big, long projects with far-reaching impact. You know, like the hedgehog, they know one important thing. Um, and sprinters like the short distance. They like to move quickly between smaller bore projects. There's still impact, but on a different scale. And like the fox, they know many things, Right. And I'm definitely a sprinter. Like, I just love moving from project to project. I was going originally to ask you what you are. It definitely seems like from what you were saying earlier that you kind of fall into this kind of marathoner category. I'm curious if this kind of theory holds water with you and, you know, in terms of people you've worked with, students you've seen. Absolutely. Without a doubt.
0: And I don't mind being a marathoner now. I had a very interesting interview with, believe it or not, David Lee Roth, the uh, lead singer of Van Halen, just recently. And we were talking about success. He was definitely a sprinter. He was in Van Halen and was one of the most famous rock and roll bands in the world really quickly and in many ways for a short period of time. I mean, they're still very well known and they still tour and so forth, but that moment where they were the it band, was mid to early 80s. And we were talking about the journey of a career, the arc of a career. And what he said was, you don't really ever want to reach the peak because when you reach the peak, you're often alone and it's always cold. And the only direction is down. And I thought, my God, That's got to be one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. I have not stopped thinking about it. I have not stopped talking about it. For me, that feels like the way I'd like to live my life. I'd like to reach the peak,
1: maybe the day I die. So here's an interesting inverse to that. I was recently reading something that prompted me to ask the question and really reflect on it. What if I never complete my masterpiece? This was an incredibly distressing <laughs> idea for me. Yep. Listeners, to I am nodding my head vigorously. You can't <laughs> hear it, but I'm a bobblehead right now. <laughs> right. But so that, to me, that strikes me as the almost inverse of what you're saying, right? Like if you were to truly accept this idea that David Lee Roth is talking about, you would also have to accept this idea that you would never complete your masterpiece. Yeah. No, that's tragic. And I think about it all the time.
0: I think about it all the time. And then people are like, but you have this wonderful legacy with your podcast. I'm like, that's just one thing. And I don't even know that it's worth consider- being considered a legacy. I, I actually still feel, and I feel this almost every day, almost all the time, that I am wasting my life and that I'm not doing more important things that make a bigger difference. And I worry about that. I worry about what if I die tomorrow? What what a tragic life I'd have had, not having ever really manifested anything with meaning. I mean, I have to say now that the work that I do with the Joyful Heart Foundation does help a little bit with that conundrum, because I do feel like eradicating the rape kit backlog and, and, and trying to um, really obliterate the, the idea that sexual violence is is even remotely acceptable in this world is is that is important and I do feel really proud of the work that I'm doing in that area but from a creative perspective I worry all the time that I will never make the things that I'm supposed to make or that I should make or that I'm capable of making just because I'm not strong enough or smart enough or talented enough.
1: Well, do you think that that bar has changed for you as you've moved along? Right? Oh, that you raise, oh, it and raise it and raise My it and raise it. My girlfriend
0: tells me all the time Debbie, you keep moving the bar. Stop moving the bar because otherwise you're never going to be satisfied. And yes,
1: I am a bar mover. I am
0: an expert bar mover.
1: Well, one exercise that I do sometimes, because of course I too am someone who's constantly moving the bar. I know. I'm like, hello, Black. I'm Gettle. <laughs> <laughs> one exercise that I do is I think about myself you know, 10 or 15 years previous to now? And would I be, you know, sort of impressed with where I am now? You know, were I in that state? And then that usually helps me get like a little bit more of a handle or perspective on it. Do you ever do anything like that? Absolutely. There was somebody that put something up on
0: Instagram. Like, imagine if you were, imagine if you were your 15 year old self looking at your life now, what would you think? And I'd be like... (laughs) I think that that person was like on crack Um, because this would have seemed a fantasy. Absolutely. I mean, I am a master metabolizer and I metabolize any achievement or success almost instantly, almost as if it's like Gatorade. And I then keep looking for the next thing to metabolize. And that just comes from, I think, tremendous self-loathing and, you know, just bad feelings about oneself, and then I use these things to feel better about myself. And so I know that. I know that I do that, and I talk about it all the time with my shrink, and I really would like to be able to be a little bit easier on myself, but I have not gotten there yet. I'm working on it, though.
1: Well, and I don't think it's something that's unique to you. As I was saying, I have the same challenge myself, but I think it's also that we live in this extremely achievement oriented culture and right coupled with the stuff with technology that we're talking about. That's very focused on instant gratification. That's very focused on these sort of overnight success. Insta fame. Yeah. Right. Exponential growth type metrics. So I feel like, yes, some of it is personal. Yes. Some of it is what we grew up with and the environments that we grew up with. But I also feel like we're swimming in this sea of, achievement oriented like do more hustle harder stuff it really fuels that it makes it incredibly difficult to slow down and to you know really be able to appreciate what you've achieved or just enjoy the process of making something
0: absolutely absolutely i even the notion of what do you want to be when you grow up has changed um, and I talk. I've talked about this before, but I think it warrants repeating. I I was a fortune teller in a um, elementary school Halloween party so many years ago. At this point, and had a crystal ball, and the kids would come up, and I'd be like, "Okay, let's look into your future. What would you like to be?" And I was expecting to hear things like fireman and teacher and swimmer and dancer. And I was hearing, and I'm really not joking, with real statistical significance here, famous famous, famous, and that's not something you just become, you have to achieve, and there was this sense of, I just want to be this thing, not make this thing, and, and that was terrifying to me, although that was then refuted by the best answer that anyone's ever given me, um, a friend of mine's daughter, uh, she was eight years old, when I asked her, what do you want to be when you grow up, and without, again, missing a beat, she looked at me, and she said, everything, <laughs> so nice. there's hope, there's hope.
1: Well, and so I think that idea of fame, right, so much of that comes out of social media and, you know, what younger kids and younger people are growing up with now. And so that's a really good way to transition into something else that I wanted to touch on, actually, which is um, you recently received a medal from the AIGA, which is basically like a Lifetime Achievement Award for your work in design, and I had the honor of being present Thank you for being at the there. ceremony. Thank you for being there. And you gave a really remarkable and moving acceptance speech. You talked about your long career working in branding and the recent rise of personal branding which has really happened in concert right with the rise of social media. And you highlighted some of the really problematic issues with carrying over an idea from the corporate world like branding into the personal sphere. Could you talk about that tension? Sure. Well, it it
0: really has to go back to what I define, how I define branding, and and one of the things that I mentioned um, in in my remarks was the myriad definitions there are about branding for branding, and I've written a book about the definitions. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time thinking about what is branding, and. I believe that branding is the result of manufactured meaning. We manufacture meaning around something that we then agree means something. It is, we're the only species on the planet that does this. It is quite a remarkable thing. We then fight over that meaning. We fight over whether that meaning is warranted. We've been doing this almost since we became conscious. Um, We manufactured meaning around symbols to signify our belief in a higher power. And then we have wars about whether that is valid or not, or which is better. And so if you look at the notion of brands being manufactured meaning, well, what does that mean when we talk about being a personal brand? That means that we're manufacturing meaning around that notion of what we represent. And humans are messy and complicated and evolve and we're inconsistent and we are slippery and brands are supposed to be the opposite of that. They're supposed to be consistent. You know, a lot of people think that brands are the promise of an experience. People say that all the time. That is probably one of the most popular definitions of the brand, the promise of an experience. Would you like to be that consistent over the course of your life that people predict how you're going to behave or what you're going to believe or what you're going to make? What is more entrapping than that? And so my, my sense of, of being a personal brand means that you are manufacturing consistent meaning that doesn't have any sense of being magical, of being messy, of being surprising. And because of the, restrictions of social media and this notion of influencers portraying a certain manufactured sense of self, it means that we're just slivers of what it means to be human if we're a personal brand. I'd hate to think that a mother would be nurturing her child as a personal brand right? We we want and expect more from our humanness than that. And so any aspiration to be a personal brand feels to me that we then restrict ourselves from the best things about what it means to be human. If we want to show up in a consistent way for business or for A performance or for an athletic prowess, then it's a reputation we're talking about, which is built over time by showing up in a certain way and being able to deliver a certain result. So, yes, I want to have a good reputation as a designer or an artist or a podcaster or a friend, but that doesn't mean that that's all part of my personal brand that feels like it's flying in the face of everything it means to be a person so there you have it
1: yeah well you're really making me think i mean i don't i don't think of myself as a personal brand per se but you know i have a newsletter that's under my name right i have a website that's under my name like you do and as i'm listening to you talk about this i'm realizing you know, it's ringing some bells for me in terms of thinking about something like my newsletter and thinking, oh, you know, I'm not really so interested in this type of content that I had been sharing with people in this. You know, I'm kind of really interested in this other thing, but thinking, you know, well, that's really inconsistent with like what I've been presenting to this growing list of whatever amount of subscribers, you know, people have come to expect this thing. Um, but my interests are shifting and they're now over here. Um, and having had those internal debates, you know, and ultimately being like, okay, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna change it. But even, I think even if you don't consciously aspire to or think about yourself as a personal brand, even if you're a sole proprietor or just, you know, person in the world who has a website that's at your name.com, it's pretty easy to get kind of lured into that because you're always trying to tell some sort of narrative about yourself.
0: And I think the operative word there for me is the word Lord, because it is easy to stay in that place. But I think even some of our greatest artists, some I mean, many of our greatest artists shifted and changed. I mean, remember when Bob Dylan went from playing a an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar? People were outraged. Um, when Joni Mitchell started playing jazz, people were outraged. People were outraged every time Madonna or Lady Gaga make a change as if we're somehow betraying their expectations or our expectations of what they're capable of and i've I've had a little bit of that i mean not even too, not even a fraction of of what they went through but my my podcast has evolved over the years it's i mean it' started out very much as designers talking about design what I'll now refer to as very inside baseball. But over the years, it's evolved to what I'd like to think is conversations about how the most incredibly creative people in the world design the arc of their lives. Now, the brand consultant in me <laughs> is like, okay, well, let's re-engineer that so that the word design still works in some way. But I know I'm pushing it, and I know I'm full of shit. Um, it's It's about how people live, how creative people live their lives. That's what I've become endlessly fascinated by. But I think that comes with growth. Had I not been doing it for as long as i have been doing it, then I might not have evolved. And then if I hadn't evolved, I'd be stuck in
1: this place. And yeah, then I could be a brand, but I don't want to be stuck in a place ever. But did you have, was that very organic for you or did you have in a moment of pause where you were like, hmm, like I'm going to change this and just kind of thinking about it? Not really. I knew that I was risking
0: the consistency of the experience once I started to interview people that weren't classified as designers. And I got a couple of dings on iTunes, you know, I thought the show was called Design Matters. When are you going to interview a designer? I don't think it matters to you anymore. You know, things like that. I can't take that to heart, even though I do. It hurts always every time I get a negative. I always am despondent. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to stay in one place for the sake of a brand.
1: Circling back to what we were touching on before, that speech that you gave when you accepted the medal at AIGA, in that talk you advocated for people to sort of stop thinking of themselves as brands and start thinking about themselves as humans again, which is really about dropping this facade um, that social media lures us into maintaining, where we project this image of a steady, unmodulated success and happiness, right? How do you think people might go about doing that in a more human way without also making themselves feel too exposed or... Unsafe.
0: Yeah, it's hard. That's it's a very hard line to balance. Uh, the few times I actually have put something up online, like oh, I'm feeling really sad about something, and you know, I get forty thousand phone calls from friends and family thinking that you know I might be in a place that's dark, and and I and I might be, but it's it's very very difficult because you do then run the risk of people wanting to change you from that too, or help you. And you might not want or or be able to accept or pick on you. That's true too. I hadn't thought about that. That's true.
1: Because I agree with you in sentiment, but I think in practice, um, it's challenging. You know, and I think there are real reasons why we fall into this trap of this overly positive and not particularly realistic narrative on social media, and and part of that is. When you're going through something hard or you're going through a difficult transition, when you're in that kind of messy middle, you just don't even know what's happening. And that's really hard to narrate. And social media is really about narrating your life for the consumption of others in a way. Yeah, I think that it's, it's very difficult because people that aren't aware
0: of this positioning and this very intentional way of communicating about oneself online – Um, I think that then, you know, incredible amount of Facebook and Instagram envy and then depression occur because people feel like they're not measuring up with their lives will never be as good. I think it's just important to be talking about it Um, because there is – it is an epidemic now. I mean, the generation – Generation Z, the nickname for Generation Z is actually Generation D, D for depressed, because of the way in which – they are comparing themselves to each other if they don't have the requisite number of likes or the requisite number of friends that they can measure. You know, we live in a world now where everything is being measured. We measure how many steps we walk and we measure how much sleep we get and the kind of sleep we're getting. And why do we need to know how many friends follow us? Why do we need to have people follow us? I mean, there's so much language in there that's so loaded and the likes. And, and that, that, I think, is, that's a trap we're all lured into. Oh, this isn't a successful post because it didn't get this much amplification or it didn't get this much coverage or engagement. And, oh, my God, it's terrifying. It really is terrifying. And I don't have an answer for it because I'm trapped in it too sometimes. You know, I want people to like what I'm doing and I, I want people to feel that what I'm doing is worthy um, but I am much more willing now to talk about things that I was fully and thoroughly ashamed of five years ago, you know, coming out, having having lived through um, really horrific abuse, um, what it feels like to be depressed. I mean, those things I am willing to talk about when I wasn't ever before because I felt so damaged and ashamed and not worthy,
1: Well, yeah, and I think that social media just may not be the appropriate venue for, you know, talking about some of these things you're referencing, right, and this sort of bite-sized modality. But I know for myself, the more um, authentic and, you know, I think kind of vulnerable that I've become just on this podcast, less so in interviews, but more in like, you know, some of the personal um, reflections that I do. Um, the more people really seem to respond to it and the more validated they feel. You know, people will write me and be like, oh, this just came at just the right time. You know, this is exactly what I needed to hear. And almost all of those moments come when I talk about, like, you know, having a hard time with something or falling short or getting frustrated about something or struggling through something. You know, it doesn't happen when I'm talking about doing something in a really perfect you know, successful, absolutely. flawless absolutely. way. Absolutely, so, absolutely. I mean, and so maybe it's absolutely. more about being open to that, you know, in the spaces where you have room to tell that more complex narrative. Yeah, and that was
0: really why I wanted to do that in my remarks when I received the medal, because I did want people to understand that you can have both. You can, here I was at this moment that was, I mean, without a doubt, the, the most successful, best moment of my life. You know, getting this medal was the most successful moment of my life. But I also felt that it was important for anybody that's seeing that to know what it takes sometimes, not for everybody, but for me, what it took to get to that place, which was quite a lot of darkness. And if that could give someone the sense that they too could be a marathoner, that they too can run through the thunderstorms and the um, garbage pickup. That they can also have something wonderful as they're
1: running, even if it takes a long time. That's what I got out of it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in in this this speech that we're talking about, you weren't arguing that social media was a bad thing by any means, and you were also talking about the success of a sort of new kind of brand there not personal brands mm. but really brands that are championing human rights black lives matter me too trans rights or human rights and it does seem to me that the success of those hashtags which turned into movements really is about people telling their stories in this really authentic and vulnerable way. Absolutely. And that is the wonderful thing that technology has
0: given us. It's been able to allow like-minded people with like-minded ideals and visions about the future to find each other and create momentum. And so if we go back to that whole notion of brands being manufactured, meaning that we then all agree that this particular manufactured thing means something, we have been able to take that, the very tenets of branding that products like Coca-Cola and KFC and Lay's potato chips and all of those brands have used. And we've now been able to democratize that ability so that we can create movements using the very same tenets that brands have used for thousands of years now. And that is super exciting because it means that the people – have the same power as the corporation, which are really just groups of people. And what are movements? Groups of people. And so these groups of people come together with like-minded values, with like-minded vision, and are saying, this is how we want our world to look. This is how we want to live in this world. And that is extraordinary, extraordinary, and it is incredibly powerful, and it makes me very optimistic about the future.
1: This conversation made me think of that classic Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? If you're not familiar, it's a melancholy ballad about the expectations we build up for the future, and then the letdown that we sometimes feel when we finally arrive at that future. Which is, in many ways, what this conversation was about. How we unconsciously, as Debbie said, metabolize our achievements while we're still on the journey so that by the time we arrive at our destination, when we publish that book or launch that new product or give that talk at a big deal conference, it somehow doesn't feel as amazing as we expected. And we think, is that all there is? Or as Peggy Lee says, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. And she's right, because that is what it's all really about. Not the outcome, but the dance. Not the achievement, but the process of getting there. Committing to something for the long haul, as Debbie talked about, and then seeing yourself get better bit by bit. Making things that matter takes a long time. And if you're going to be putting in all of that effort day after day you might as well enjoy the dance as you may have noticed from this conversation i have wrestled with the overachiever mindset myself for many years which to be honest results in a lot of self-criticism and dissatisfaction and eventually after years of beating yourself up leads to burnout. My new online course, Reset, takes everything that I learned recovering from burnout and translates it into a deceptively simple and fun four-week program that teaches you how to work in a way that is gentle, sustainable, and powerful. Past students have called the course literally life-changing. My favorite online course of all time And one of the best investments I've made in myself in years. Reset is currently open for registration through May 17th. You can learn more and book your spot at reset-course.com. Once again, that's reset-course.com. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. Why do you make things?
0: I'm happiest when I make things. I discovered that about myself several years ago, that I was happiest when I was making something. It could be a meal, it could be a podcast, it could be a lesson plan, it could be a new business presentation when I was at Sterling, but the the notion of making something from nothing, putting things together and then making something that exists, just felt like the biggest gift in the world. And that is when I am happiest.
1: Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig-Johnson for composing our theme music, Calm Revelation. If this episode inspired you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a link right down there in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and remember to hurry slowly.